Amen. This morning, um, we're not having children's church on Christmas Eve. We're going to give our kids' church workers a break. And so if you did not receive a packet, perhaps, when you came in for your children, I was going to say there's some more up here, but I don't see any more up here. <laughs> so you can have my kids, and they'll just sit there and stare at me from the front. Oh, if you need it. But um, it's going to be a little bit more noisy in here, but I think it's good to hear the rustle and the hustle of children at times, and I really am a firm believer that there are times that our children need to set in an adult service and learn how to worship with adults, and so we have kids' church up through third grade, and then we bring the kids back in here in fourth grade and above for worship, but it's good for our children or younger children to worship with us, uh, at least on occasion, so I hope you will... Um, Relax if you're uptight a little bit when there's a little bit more noise than normal, but it's good to hear the, the noise of children. If you've got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We've been working through a series that we've entitled Great Joy for All. We're looking at Luke 1 and 2 and uh, just looking at the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus during this season of the, the month of December. And so now we come to chapter 2 and we're going to look at the first seven verses this morning. And this afternoon at 4.30, we'll come back and, and look at verses 8 through 20, uh, where the angel declares to the shepherds that there is a Savior who has been born in the town of Bethlehem. I love Christmas, and I'm sure you do as well. And it's good to see everybody this morning, a really strong crowd. I hope that means that you're going to come back again this evening for a really special family-oriented traditional candlelight service. But it's good for us to gather and worship during Christmas season. It's one of my favorite times of the year. It's really exciting season that we're in. And so sometimes we may wonder, what makes this season so wonderful? What makes it so exciting? You know, for some, it's the opportunity to gather with family and friends. You, you just don't have those opportunities the other, you know, other 364 days of the year just because of the busyness of life. And so for this one day or maybe this one week, we get to kind of gather with family and friends. And for them, that's what makes this season so exciting. It's a time to take a break from the work and maybe even travel to see the loved ones that you have not been able to see or spend time with this past year. For others, it's the traditions that revolve around Christmas. It's, it's the decorating of the tree. It's putting lights on the house. It's uh, getting the kids together, grandkids together, and baking cookies and, and cakes and, and just spending time with family. It's singing Christmas carols and all of those traditions that we have. And then for others, and maybe for most, it's the gifts, right? What makes Christmas so exciting is the opportunity to give gifts, to bless others, and, and to even be blessed. I mean, let's just be honest. The, the great thing about Christmas is the giving and the receiving of gifts. And it's, I say that not as a hedonist. I say that not as someone who, who, who just wants to hoard up. It, we love to give and to receive gifts because we have first been given too, right? As Christians, we celebrate and we give gifts to one another. We, we do this with a, with a sense of excitement because we have first been given too by the Lord. And so the giving and receiving of gifts ultimately is what makes this season so special. It's because Jesus is the gift. But because of that gift, there's a whole industry that's, been, that's raised, been raised up or risen up around the holiday of Christmas. Did you know that last year, in the year of 2016, over $1 trillion was spent in our country alone for Christmas? Now, that's Christmas decorations, that's the tree, that's perhaps fuel to go back and forth to Grandma's house, and that's the gifts. But over $1 trillion was spent in America on Christmas 
last year. A Forbes article that I read uh, earlier this week uh, from December 22nd of last year was, was estimating that each family or each person would spend $419 on Christmas. I read that and I thought, man, that's awful low. Uh, most people I know are going to spend well beyond $419. But on average, last year, they were estimating that every person would spend $419 on Christmas. I think this year, with the way the economy, and thankfully the economy has grown uh, rapidly, that we should see a, a huge increase in that, or we would expect a huge increase in spending this year. I mean, today in homes all across our country, all around our community, Christmas trees are standing over mounds of presents. It may not be true at your house, but it's true at a lot of houses. Christmas trees are standing or perhaps even being dwarfed by the mounds of Christmas presents. Just in the last few days, uh, we've seen an a influx of presents underneath our own tree. Most of them for our, if not all of them, for our kids. You know how that is, isn't it? When you get parents, you just become parents. You don't longer give to one another. You give to the kids and you rejoice in that. And so what has to happen is, as mom brings out gift after gift as she spent time De- uh, wrapping them and maybe even decorating those gifts. She comes out, she makes a room, and that tree gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, there's nothing wrong with giving gifts to others. There's nothing wrong with receiving gifts from others. It's a beautiful reminder of what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the ultimate gift that's been given to us, and that is Jesus Christ. The problem there is, is that in the hustle and bustle and in the the, the commercialization that we have in America with Christmas is that we sometimes, because of all of our presence and all of the things that we're doing, we fail to remember to make room for the Savior. That we allow all the things that come along with this season to sort of push out the Savior. And so this morning, I want to speak to this subject, that we make room for the Savior in our lives. That we make room for Him personally in our lives this Christmas season. And so if you will, look with me in Luke chapter 2, and let's read the first seven verses. The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, or if you just prefer to look at the screen because they're so much bigger than those little words in your Bible. But Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Luke says this about the birth of Jesus. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take your word this morning, the word that lays out the account of your birth in Bethlehem. And I pray that through the Holy Spirit you'd speak into our hearts and into our lives and help us understand what it means and the significance of the birth of our Savior. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray for those who are not in relationship with you, who are dead in their sin today, who might be religious but outside of a relationship with the God who created them for himself. I pray this morning that you would awaken them to new life. Lord, I pray for us who are believers, that you'd help us to to make sure that we put place or or parameters in our life and we make room for you in our lives. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that this season would not be lost because of all of the events and things that take place. But Lord Jesus, we would make sure that we put Jesus at the center of it all. May we make room for the Savior in our lives. Speak to us, Jesus, through your word we pray. Amen. Luke here is recording for us the history that surrounds the birth of Jesus. I told you a few weeks ago that Luke here is the, this gospel writer, and he's writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he writes both Luke and Acts as a historical account to teach Theophilus, this young believer, this, this new convert to Christ, probably a, a Greek who, who doesn't know much about Christianity, doesn't know much about Jesus. And so Luke wants to make sure he solidifies the gospel for this young new believer. And so as Luke is writing, he's given us the history around the birth of Jesus. And in doing so, he details the things that God sovereignly orchestrated so that the Son would be born in Bethlehem and thus fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. And so what we see here in Luke chapter 2, these first seven verses, is that Luke is telling us how Jeremiah 31, 25 and Micah 5, 2 and other prophecies are fulfilled in the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that Jesus was born or was raised in Nazareth. So he came, his parents came down to Bethlehem and he was born there, but then they later went back to Nazareth and he was raised in Nazareth. So how does a man from Nazareth be born in Bethlehem? Well, we see here how that took place. The Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary were betrothed, that is, they were engaged, they were pledged to one another. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, points out that this marriage had not been consummated and wasn't consummated until after the baby was born. And so both Luke and Mar- Matthew are telling us that, that Mary was a virgin. Now, we know from historical accounts that during this betrothal period, this engagement period, to put it in our own vernacular, the couple would often act and do certain things as if they were married. And, and that happens to us as well in, in America today. Now, we don't hopefully don't live together during, during our engagement period, but when we ask our uh, future spouse to marry us, we begin to think like a married person. We begin to act like a married person some, in some instances, and that's sort of what's taking place here, most likely with Joseph and Mary. And so many scholars would believe that Mary might have been living with Joseph during this time, and perhaps that's the reason she travels to Bethlehem with him. Or perhaps another reason she travels with him was because she's great with child, and she expects to give birth in the next few weeks. And so she wanted to be with Joseph. She wanted to have him by her side, and so she tagged along on this long journey. Well, the reasoning that she comes down here. We don't know exactly why she comes or what the reason was. We can only speculate. But we do know that Mary came with Joseph to Bethlehem. We do know that Mary was a virgin. And we do know that the child she carried was of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not the father of this baby. God the Father was the father of this baby. And so there in Bethlehem, we see that Luke tells us that the time came for her to give birth. Ladies... Is that not the understatement of all understatements? Man, I think we can concur with that as well. If, you've, if you're a dad and you've been in that delivery room, uh, that little statement, the time for her to give birth came, that's an understatement. I've been in the delivery room three different times. That is an understatement, right? I remember uh, when our first daughter was 
being born. It was uh, about five weeks premature. We had just moved to Alabama a few weeks before that. We had just bought our first house. We are really still kind of setting things up. I hadn't even got the nursery set up yet. This is the middle of January, toward the latter part of January. Haley wasn't expected to come and make her entrance for another five weeks, and so we thought we had time, right? We're, we're going to continue to get this house ready. We're going to continue to get ourselves ready. We're first-time parents. We don't know what we're doing. time you get to the third child, you're like, yeah, it's old hat. We got this down pat. You know, it's kind of easy, so to speak. But this is our first child. We don't have a clue what we're doing. And all of a sudden, on a Sunday or a Saturday evening, about 1030 at night, I'd fallen asleep on the couch. I was watching a UFC fight, and I'd fallen asleep out there, which is usually the case at my house, falling asleep on the couch. And I hear this. Uh, scream come from the bedroom, James, come here now, my water's broken. I kind of stumble up and in a stupor run in there, I'm probably wiping my eyes and trying to figure out, did I hear Kara correctly? And so I think I asked her again, what's going on? And she tells me, my water broke. And I think I said something very foolish like, that can't be possible. We still have a month to go, right? And, and so the evidence, I looked down, she, I think literally she said, look. And so I looked down, and this is going to gross you up, but the evidence is on the floor. Later, we had to clean that up. But uh, her water had broken 10.30 on a Saturday night. I think all of our kids were born on Sunday morning, by the way. Good for a preacher. Gets me out of work for at least one day. <laughs> Mark that one hour that I work each week, right? <clears throat> and so I go in there, and I, I, I make the statement, the understatement of all understatements. It's not time yet. And it was obviously time, and so we had nothing prepared because we did not expect this. And so I think Kara and myself called some of our friends who lived close by, and Jen came over and helped Kara pack a bag, and we ran off to the hospital about Mach 3 going down the road, middle of the night. And uh, the next morning, 5 in the morning, somewhere around that time, we had Haley uh, into this world. And so it was a wonderful experience, a very stressful experience, and so I would not declare to Kara that her time to give birth had come. That, was, that would be an understatement. So Luke here is omitting for us a whole lot of the craziness that was probably taking place, right? Luke's omitting the craziness that surrounded this event. He, he tells us that Mary gave birth to the son, that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, kind of made him look like a burrito, and, and then stuck him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. I'm not sure if she was preparing him for the meal to be eaten as a burrito or what, but she laid him in a trough. You know, the details Luke gives us make it clear that Jesus was not born in the maternity wing at Bethlehem Memorial Hospital. He was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger. There was probably animals close by. Why is that? Why did that happen? Why was he born in such an obscure place? Well, Luke tells us that due to the census, that most likely the, the, the town of Bethlehem was flooded with people. Bethlehem was not a large town. It was a small town. And so when he says there was no room for them in the inn, the truth is that was not a suitable place. I think sometimes the innkeeper gets a bad rap in this text, and almost like he rejected, or perhaps the, the place was too full that they couldn't find a place to stay. Most likely, some scholars would tell us that this, this term in that it's translated would have referred to or most likely refers to a crude or, or rudimentary type of lodging. I mean, you could think of, especially since we live in Powhatan, if there was a census taken in our county and everyone who was born and raised here was called back to Powhatan, we would not have room for them, right? There's no hotels in Powhatan. And so the same perhaps would have been 
true of Bethlehem. And so they had to create some sort of makeshift lodging. And, and so this would have been a, a rough place. This would have been a place for caravans. This would have been a place you would not want to have given, want, would have want to have given birth if you were Mary. And so this was not a suitable place for Mary to deliver her son. And so in an attempt to get away from the crowds, Mary and Joseph retreated to a stable. Now there's irony in that. And the irony is, is that the most important event in history took place in a manger. And this should not be lost of because what we see here in this, the irony is this, is that it reveals how God elevates the lowly, he elevates the humble, and he rejects the proud and the mighty of the world. So the king of all kings, the creator of the universe, is being laid in a manger. Philippians 2 would speak to this, that Jesus humbled himself and God the Father exalted him to the right hand of the throne of majesty. And so there's irony in all of this. What about the people of Bethlehem that night? They had no idea that just right there in their midst that the king of glory was being born. They had no idea what was happening. They had no idea that the king of kings was was literally coming into this world in their own town. They had no idea that their creator, they had no idea that their savior to be was about to enter this world in human form. You see, if they had known, surely some would have come and offered him lodging. Some of them would have opened their home. Some of them would have opened up or given them their room if they had known. But the truth is, most people then and throughout the life of, and ministry of Jesus misunderstood him and wanted nothing to do with him. They made no room for Jesus I mean, think about how many times Jesus was misunderstood in his life and ministry. Do you remember the time? We see it in Luke chapter 2, the latter part of that chapter. Jesus is 12 years old. It's the time for the feast of Passover. And Mary and Joseph have brought Jesus and most likely his other siblings that were born after him. They've come down to Jerusalem with a caravan of people from the region of Nazareth. And, and, and they've worshipped. They've went through the ritual of the Passover feast. And then now it's time for them to go back home. And Luke tells us that, that Joseph and Mary and the others had traveled a whole day, and then all of a sudden they realized Jesus is not with them. Jesus wasn't there. I, I don't know how you lose a child. I've not really lost a child that much, but <laughs> there's still some time for that. But they lose Jesus. Can you imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph at this point? You know whose fault it is, right? It's Joseph's fault. It's always the man's fault. Let's just be honest, ladies. It's, and men, it's probably true. It's usually our fault. We're not usually as, uh, as on top of things as we ought to be. And so just imagine the conversation between Mary and Joseph at this point. Mary comes up to Joseph and says, Joseph. I mean, she's a little hysterical. She's anxious. She's, she's uptight. Joseph, we have lost our son. Joseph, we have lost Jesus. We have lost the Son of God. Can you imagine standing before the Father one day and, and giving an account for that? Heavenly Father, I, I'm, I apologize, I lost your son. That maybe was what was going through Mary's mind at this point. Joseph, we have lost the Son of God. What in the world are we going to do? Where is he? Well, the Bible tells us that they searched for three days for Jesus. And finally, there in Jerusalem, they found the Lord in the temple. And what he's doing is he's having this conversation back and forth with the wise men, the, the, the scholars, the priests. 
And Luke tells us that he is actually confounding the wise as he talks with them. And how is that possible? How could a 12-year-old, a, a, a preteen, confound the scholars of his day? Well, the reason was, it was because he wrote the scriptures, right? Jesus wrote the scriptures. John tells us that he was the word, that he is the word. And he's the one who spoke everything into existence. I mean, he is the very word of God that brought creation into existence. So he knows the nuances of scripture. He knows the details of scripture. And so he is confounding the wise as he sits there in the temple area and talks with them for those few days. Uh, Imagine being one of those priests having this conversation with this young boy. Imagine what they're thinking, what's going through their mind. I can only imagine what they were thinking and perhaps even saying to him. Uh, one of those men surely would have looked at Jesus and said, Boy, what in the world is your name? i got to know who you are. i got to know what you're about. What is your name? Who are you? Where are you from? Who, who's your family? What's your name, boy? To which Jesus would have had to say, Well, that's a little complicated. That's a little complicated. You see on my mama's side... My name is Jesus, but on my daddy's side, I'm Emmanuel, which means God is with you. And he would have spoke it probably with very strong emphasis and force, not, not proudly or arrogantly, but with confidence. I am Emmanuel, which means God is with you. And that scholar, that priest, perhaps kind of stepped back and said, what? I, I don't quite understand and how old are you you look like a young boy to me how old are you and Jesus would have said well on my mama's side I'm 12 years old but on my daddy's side it's not how old I am you see I'm before time I'm before space and I am before matter son where do you come from (laughs) well on my mama's side I'm from Bethlehem which means the house of bread because I am the bread of God But on my daddy's side, again, it's not where I'm from, it's what's from me. I am the one by whom and through whom everything is from. Those priests would have been sitting there just dumbfounded at these statements. Who is this young guy? How how is he able to make these statements? Perhaps they're even beginning to boil up with anger. And so they ask the question, where are you going then? He says, on my mama's side, I'm going to a cross and then I'm going to a grave. But on my daddy's side, I'm going to a throne that is above every throne. I'm going to the right hand of God the Father. You see, Jesus was there. and He's teaching these these scholars. He's teaching these priests. He's confounding the wise. He he declares that he himself will sit on the throne of all thrones and rule over everything for all time. Jesus throughout his life and Jesus throughout his ministry was often misunderstood. And here, even at his birth, he was missed by the majority. Later at his death, he was missed by the majority. And still to this day, Jesus is misunderstood and Jesus is missed. See, even during the Christmas season, this time where we celebrate his birth and we celebrate his entry into our world, the vast majority of people will miss him. Will miss him. We will sing songs. We will celebrate him. We will sing songs about Jesus and the birth and all of the things. But they will miss Jesus. They will make no room for him in their lives. Jesus will find no suitable place to dwell within their life. Why? Because they never made room for him. 
That's the tragedy we see in verse 7. And so I want to share with you how to make room for Jesus, not just in the Christmas season, but in your life. So let me share with you three things. Making room for this Savior demands three things from you. First of all, it demands that you recognize the Savior. It demands that you recognize the Savior. See, the residents and the guests of Bethlehem that night did not recognize the Savior. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have a clue. They might have heard a baby squalling when he came into this world, you know, when he was born, but they thought it was just uh, business as usual. They had no idea that that young pregnant lady they saw earlier that day ride in on that donkey, they had no idea that she was carrying the very Son of God. They had no idea that within her womb was the Creator and their Savior. They didn't recognize Him. You see, they didn't leap for joy at his presence like John the Baptist. You remember last week when we looked at that passage where Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, her great aunt and her second cousin, and there in her womb as Mary comes into the room and Mary begins to speak, John the Baptist, as he's later known, who's in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps for joy. But the people in Bethlehem that day, as Mary rode in on the donkey with, with Joseph, they didn't leap for joy. They didn't exalt him when they came into his presence. They didn't praise and worship him like Elizabeth and Mary did. But instead what they did is they carried on with their lives. It was business as usual. You see, they're like, like, a lot like us. Life was busy. Life was full. The events were many. They had to make a living. They had to provide for their families. They had to get to the game, perhaps. They had shopping to do. They had a census to take. They had religious activities to attend. They were too busy, they were too preoccupied by the things in their lives to recognize the Savior. Some of them, perhaps, wanted nothing to do with a Savior. And so the, even, even the thought of a Savior would have been repugnant to them. They didn't want a Savior. They didn't think they needed a Savior. So the experience of those in Bethlehem was, was not unique to them alone. The same experience is, is felt by many today. Life is too busy, we push what's important, we push Jesus out because we miss him or we misunderstand him. Our schedules are full, our life is filled with trouble, our life is filled with sorrow. You know what, well, oftentimes God uses those sorrows and those troubles in our life to open our eyes. I had a conversation just this past week with a, with a lady with a death in her family and, and so her heart was troubled, her heart was sensitive and she, she began to exclaim, I need to make some changes in my life, I need to rededicate my life. But for many people in that day, there in Bethlehem, the troubles and the sorrows and perhaps even the sufferings were too great and it drowned out the fact that they had Jesus in their midst. The hustle and the bustle for providing their families drowned it out recognizing Jesus. It was even those who were filled with religious activity failed to recognize him. Passage I alluded to just a moment ago when Jesus is sitting in the temple confounding the wise, they didn't recognize him. They wanted to know who he was. They didn't understand how he could know more than they knew. They were religiously trained. They were scholars. They were men of the law. They knew every nuance of it, or so they thought, and yet Jesus was confounding them. Today, though, bringing it back home for us, we need to make sure that we slow down. We need to make sure that we intentionally look at the Savior. See, we must recognize that Jesus is our one and only Savior, that he is the God who came to seek and to save the loss. This morning, this Christmas season, we need to recognize the Savior. Secondly, if we're going to make room for the Savior, we need to 
understand that we not only recognize, but we acknowledge the Savior. See, it's one thing to recognize the Savior. It's quite another to acknowledge Him as my Savior. There's a lot of people who will sing those Christmas carols, and they will, like we have already sung this morning, and in those Christmas carols, they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the one who came to take away our sins. And so they're singing that. They're saying that. They're exclaiming that, but they're not acknowledging it for themselves. Mary, Mary clearly understood the difference. I mean, think about Mary here. She knew that the baby she carried within her womb was to be her Savior. I love that Christmas song that, that is sung so often. Mary, did you know? Uh, even in this own passage, uh, in the latter part, of, I think it's verse 19 in chapter 2, it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. I think there was many times in Mary's life as she carried Jesus and even throughout the life of Jesus, she probably just kind of took, took a step back and just began to analyze what's going on there. She was overwhelmed by the fact that God would include her in the story. So she just pondered the fact that I am carrying the Son of God. I am holding the Son of God. I am changing the diapers. I am feeding and I'm rocking to sleep the one who never sleeps or slumbers. It's too great for my mind to even be wrapped around. But Mary understood that he wasn't just the Savior. She understood that he was to be her Savior. She had heard the words of Gabriel who declared that the boy's name was to be Jesus, which means God saves. She also understood that knowing Jesus was the Savior wasn't enough. It's not the same as making him my Savior. See, Mary understood that she had to appropriate that truth to her own life. She had to acknowledge Jesus as her Savior and Lord. She does that in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. As she sings this hymn, this praise back to the Lord, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Christmas time, we sing songs about Jesus. We declare He is the Savior of the world. But this morning, I wonder, is He your Savior? Have you embraced Him? And that leads us to that third thing that making room for the Savior demands, and that is that we must embrace the Savior. Like Mary, we must recognize that the birth of Jesus was not an ordinary event. Millions of babies are born each day. But the birth of Jesus was, is and was different than, than them all. Mary recognized that she was giving birth to the Savior of the world. But she did more than that. She acknowledged, as I just read to you, that he was her Savior. That she's placing her faith in her own baby to save her from her own sins. She acknowledged that he alone had the power to redeem her sin-filled life. However, she didn't just recognize and she didn't just acknowledge that he was to be her Savior or even had the ability to be her Savior. Mary embraced Jesus as her Savior. She put her faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. You see, what was true for Mary then is true for us today. Making room for the Savior demands that we recognize Jesus, that we embrace Jesus, that we uh, acknowledge Jesus. But we got we to gotta make sure that we don't just recognize, but then we move to acknowledgement and embrace it. You know, for me, I grew, up as a, I grew up in a Christian home, and we didn't go to church all the time. We're a lot like some of you, let's be honest, right? We go through ups and downs, and we did the same thing. In our family, there would be times where we would go to church every single Sunday for maybe a, a period of months, maybe even a couple of years, and then we would go periods where never, we never went to church. Unfortunately, that's too common in America today. But my dad would teach us the Bible. I knew about Jesus. I, I had a, a fairly good understanding of the gospel at this time, or at that time. 
But there was a day as a freshman in college where I didn't just recognize Jesus or, or even acknowledge Jesus was to be my Savior. But there was a moment, April 24th, 1997, where I heard the gospel very clearly through my devotion time that morning from 1 John chapter 5, where it says, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. And that verse ripped my heart out that day. And I understood, understood the only thing I had up until that point was religion. I had recognized and I had even acknowledged, but I had not embraced Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And so Mary embraced Jesus. The disciples embraced Jesus. And today we all must embrace Jesus as Lord and as Savior. So the good news of great joy that the angel declares to those shepherds was that in Bethlehem a Savior had been born into this world. And today the good news of great joy is still the same. There was a Savior born in Bethlehem. And if you'll place your faith and trust in Him, you can have forgiveness of sins. Romans 10, 13 is still true. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, everyone who embraces Him as Savior and Lord, will experience forgiveness of all sin and come into relationship with the God who created them for Himself. That's true for every single person. Person. I've stood in the bush of Africa and I've proclaimed the gospel. And people who had never heard the name of Jesus before, they heard the gospel for the very first time and they responded in faith and repentance. And today, I am confident that I'll see them in heaven one day. I may never see them again on this side of heaven, but I'll see them again in heaven one day because they put faith in Jesus. I've seen people in churches all across the southeast where I've served who've placed their faith in Jesus, and I'll see them in heaven one day, not because they're a good person, not because they're a good churchman, but because they place faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Even recently, we've had some children in our church who've placed their faith in Jesus. See, it's not about who you are. It's not about your last name. It's not whether what gender you are or what socioeconomic status you are. None of that matters when it comes to Jesus. It all comes down to, have I recognized Jesus? Have I acknowledged Jesus? And am I embracing Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Christmas is the most exciting time of the year. What makes Christmas so exciting Oh, it's going to be fun tonight and tomorrow for a lot of families as we watch kids rip open presents and get excited and jump around and do all of that. It's going to be exciting. But what makes Christmas Christmas is the gift of God the Father to mankind. It's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of His only begotten Son. It's the gift that we, that we read about in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave. What did He give? His only begotten son. Why did he give his only begotten son? So that whosoever would believe would have everlasting life. That they wouldn't perish. That they wouldn't spend eternity in hell, which they deserve. But they would have everlasting life with God the Father. Today I wonder, have you made room for the Savior in your life? This morning, can you say with all certainty that you recognize that Jesus is the Savior? This morning, can you say with all certainty that in your life you have acknowledged Jesus as the Savior? Can you say this morning that in your life, personally, you have embraced Jesus Christ as the Savior? At our house, we've got a big gift. We put it out last night, and girls came down early, which they were not supposed to do, which, you know, how that is. Luckily, I'd already put it under the tree, but they came down, they saw it, and they're up here, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> but 
they, we got this big box, and they're excited about opening it up. Because, you know, anytime the box is big, it means it's a big gift, right? The funny thing is, is that uh, uh, we could fool them and put something really, really small in that box. And I think that'd be hilarious. But uh, uh, that's just uh, the, the mean side of me. <laughs> but thinking about sitting there with your family, and you're unwrapping presents together, and, and uh, you got this big box or you've got this maybe small box, but the, the wrapping's real special, and it, it looks like it's a really expensive gift. None of us would wrap, unwrap and, and, and go for all the smaller gifts and, and the ones that don't look as fancy. None of us would, would unwrap all of those and leave that one really good-looking gift under the tree, would we? No. If you would do that, you are nuts, and I've got some phone numbers for you. i get you some counseling later this week, right? None of us would do that. We want to we open that big present. We want to open that fancy present. We want to open that present that looks like it cost a whole lot of money. We would never leave that prime, prime present under the tree. But for some reason, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the message of what Jesus has done for you, that wonderful gift, the best gift you could ever receive, we will look at it and we will, we will, we will uh, become mesmerized by its beauty. We will we, perhaps even acknowledge that it is a wonderful gift. But for some reason, there are so many people who won't take that gift for themselves and embrace it and receive it. You see, the Bible tells us that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you have to embrace the gift that Jesus freely offers you. This morning, I wonder, have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? For me, I was 18 years old, as I said earlier. I was a freshman in college. I was a religious kid. I'd do quiet times a day. I would, had been a student leader in my youth ministry, leading people to Christ, going on mission trips. I, I was currently, at that time, teaching Sunday school. I had a seventh grade boys class. I was religious as you could get in my church at that point. But I was lost, and I knew it. And on that Thursday afternoon at 1 o'clock, I said, you know what, it's time for me to take the gift, the best gift that's underneath the tree, and I'm going to unwrap it because it's for me. I hope that's, if that's you this morning, you've never received Jesus as the Lord and Savior, I hope this morning that you'll take the gift and unwrap it for yourself. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you are our gift. You are that wonderful gift that God the Father has given to us. See, Lord, we understand, we know what the Bible teaches, that we are dead in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. We have no relationship with the God who created us for himself. We have no ability to create that relationship. We can't do enough good things. We can't help enough older folks across the road. We can't give enough money. None of those things matter. Because all of our righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are nothing but filthy rags in the sight and in the presence of a holy God. And this is where the good news steps in. Because in our sin and in our death, Jesus stepped in and took our place. The Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas was the Jesus who lived a holy and perfect life. He's the Jesus who offered himself as a perfect holy sacrifice on the cross. There on that cross, Lord, we understand that the wrath of God the Father was exhausted. The wrath that was meant for my sin was exhausted on Jesus so that my punishment he absorbed in his body. So today, Lord, each and every one of us, 
there's a free gift that's offered to us. That is the free gift of salvation. And all we have to do is reach out in faith and in repentance, receive it into our life. Faith, believing in what Jesus has done. Repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Jesus. And I pray this morning that the senior adult man or woman, the middle-aged man or woman, the teenager, the child that's sitting here this morning who's never given their life to Jesus, who's never acknowledged that wonderful gift and embraced it for themselves, that today would be, as Pastor Nick prayed earlier, would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, I pray for every believer in here this morning. I pray that we would have a greater understanding, a greater appreciation for Christmas because we see that wonderful gift that Jesus is for us. Bless us this morning. As we move into a time of invitation, Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us obedience. And God, give us faith to respond to whatever it is you're leading us to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Won't you stand with me?